Well, hello again, everyone. Welcome to another at-home edition of our Banner Lecture Series. Uh, I'm Adam Scher, Vice President for Collections and Exhibitions at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. So glad you could join us today. As always, we like to start by thanking our members who make this uh, program possible. Uh, your support uh, is essential to making these events happen, so we deeply appreciate that. Now on to today's speaker. Uh, today, we're very pleased to have with us uh, Dr. Christopher Leahy, who is a professor of history at Keuka College in New York. Uh, and he'll be talking to us about his book, President Without a Party, The Life of John Tyler. John Tyler is the nation's only president to have been kicked out of his own political party. In 1841, angry that Tyler's use of the veto destroyed their legislative agenda, members of the Whig Party held a ceremony at the Capitol and, in, and formally banished him from their ranks. Tyler's excommunication affected him personally. It impacted his agenda and destroyed his chances to win election in 1844. Portrayed by his contemporaries and by many historians as an ideologue, whose devotion to states' rights and a strict construction of the Constitution thwarted compromise and made him a failed president, Dr. Leahy instead argues that Tyler largely favored a bipartisan or middle-of-the-road approach to the nation's problems, and that it was his status as a president without a party and a rejection by both the Whigs and Democrats that doomed his presidency. Please welcome Dr. Christopher Leahy. Thank you so much. Um, to start, I want to thank the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, and especially Graham Dozier for giving me the opportunity to speak before you today. I also want to thank the guests of the Virginia Museum uh, for their interest in John Tyler, for their interest in my book, and for their attention today. I'm very pleased uh, to be here today to speak to you about uh, what is, at least uh, currently, my life's work. I do have slides to accompany the lecture, which always makes my students at Cuca College very happy to find out. So I will hook up the, the slideshow right now. So many years ago, when I was deciding upon a dissertation topic, I came upon John Tyler. And of course, I had uh, a little bit of knowledge about Tyler. I was a history major in college. I was a graduate student in, in history. Um, but I became fascinated by the question of how someone could actually get kicked out of their own political party. What did someone have to do to have his political party resort to the very drastic, very extreme measure of kicking him out of their ranks. So that really became the, the animating aspect of, of why I was interested in him. My dissertation dealt with his life and his political career uh, before he became president, but certainly you know, keeping an eye on him being a president without a party really guided my, my research and my writing for, for much of the last several years uh, before the book got published. So when Tyler was banished from the ranks of the Whigs in September of 1841, uh, he really established Henry Clay, uh, shown here on the left, uh, as his number one enemy. Clay was essentially the uh, Senate majority leader. That title didn't yet formally exist, but he was essentially the Senate majority leader for half of Tyler's presidency. Um, and you see on the right here, a political cartoon going back to the uh, corrupt bargain election of 1824, where Clay is sewing Jackson's lips shut so he will shut up about Clay's involvement in the corrupt bargain. So Clay had a, a long career in uh, presidential politics, in congressional politics. He had been Speaker of the House, uh, but he had come into office in the Senate uh, before Tyler became president, really determined to try to shift the course of, of American society and the economy and in fact had persuaded President William Henry Harrison to uh, call a special session of Congress to deal with the financial panic that had been going on off and on since uh, 1837. 
So Clay really became Tyler's chief enemy. And it was Clay who had apparently coined the phrase, his accidency to uh, describe John Tyler and to mock how he ended up in the White House. This slide, I think, uh, hints at least at the affability of a man that one female visitor to the White House said possessed none of the hauteur or condescension one usually expected in a Virginia gentleman. He's kind of debonair, a little suave there, uh, showing himself. Uh, when he wanted to, Tyler could be charming and gracious, but his relationship with Henry Clay and the congressional Whigs often put him in a foul mood. And I detail uh, several instances in the book where a lot of this graciousness and affability uh, really disappeared as Tyler attempted to deal with being a president without a party. As the title of the book indicates, my focus on Tyler as the 10th president revolves around his banishment from the Whigs, and I spent a significant amount of time examining what happened, how it happened, and why it mattered. Today, however, I want to focus our attention on one of the themes of the book, John Tyler's addiction to politics. This is an important aspect of his life and career that has been overlooked by biographers and other historians. Now, this is not to say that other politicians, either in Tyler's era or our own, have failed to demonstrate a virtual addiction to politics. Success in the political arena, after all, particularly at the national level, necessitates that a public official give their all to their career if they hope to have staying power. This is also not to say that Tyler's addiction to politics involved an addiction in the clinical sense of the term, although I did have moments during the course of my research and writing when I thought this might be true. What my book shows is that Tyler calculated his self-worth and defined his life, indeed his masculinity, by success in the political arena, particularly the national political arena, and that once he had been bitten by the politics bug, he could never give it up. Even when he realized it was harming his marriage, his relationships with his children, and his finances. He also failed to realize how much his addiction to politics would tarnish his historical reputation, which is particularly ironic given that ultimately he chose a career in politics because it offered him the best chance to achieve historical renown and leave a lasting mark. Looking at Tyler's addiction to politics also allows us to calibrate the impact of his father on his life and career. His father was certainly the most important uh, person in his life. Uh, Judge John Tyler, shown here on the right, was a minor figure in the founding of the nation and played a significant role as an anti-federalist at the Virginia Convention that was called in 1788 to debate ratification of the Constitution. Judge Tyler had served in the Virginia House of Delegates and had even been elected speaker on several occasions. You can see that Judge Tyler sported a rather prominent nose, which he passed on to his son, the future president. Anyone who tried to describe John Tyler usually began by noting his prominent nose, variously referred to as aquiline in a lot of the sources. Uh, John Quincy Adams uh, notes uh, John Tyler's nose in a couple of his diary entries. In fact, you could even say that uh, at some point, John Quincy Adams almost became obsessed with John Tyler's nose uh, among other things about the accidental president or the president without a party. But Judge Tyler passed on much more to his son than his physical characteristics. Tyler's relationship with his father is key to understanding him and key to understanding how his addiction to politics developed. Tyler was very close to his father. His mother died when he was seven years old and the young boy took it hard as you might expect. He developed stomach ailments and his father worried about him, both because he was sickly and because he was a nervous child, small and frail. A turning point of sorts occurred when the future president was about 10 years old. The story seems apocryphal, at the very least it is prob pr probably embellished, and I actually kept it out of the book. I, I edited it out of the book, cut it out of the book during the, uh, the copy editing phase. 
The incident in question involved a Scottish schoolmaster named McMurdo, first name unknown, who taught John Tyler and several other boys in a little neighborhood school not far from Greenway, his home in Charles City County, Virginia. McMurdo seemed to take special delight in wrapping his students' knuckles when they forgot their lessons. Tyler, in fact, said later in life, it was a wonder that he did not whip all the sense out of his scholars. One day, the boys in the school had had enough. John Tyler led the others in tripping McMurdo and tying him up with rope. Now, on the left-hand side of this slide is what the scene may have looked like before the boys got the better of McMurdo. This is a, uh, a great image uh, from the Lewis Walpole collection at Yale. It's not exactly uh, McMurdo and John Tyler and his, his fellow students, but I think it captures the, the spirit of what that schoolhouse must have looked like. After tying their nemesis up, the boys exited the school in triumph, leaving the schoolmaster writhing on the floor. Two hours later, he was, he was freed by a passerby and immediately stomped towards the Tyler home, fully expecting that once he told Judge Tyler about the role his son played in the event, that he would receive swift punishment. Instead, McMurdo arrived at the house, knocked on the door, spoke with Judge Tyler, told him what had happened, whereupon Judge Tyler banished him from the house, screaming six semper tyrannis as he kicked him out the door, the state motto of Virginia, thus always the tyrants. We can assume that if the incident with McMurdo happened as I've described it here, Judge Tyler was pleased because his sickly, frail, nervous son had asserted himself and shed the reticence he had exhibited since the passing of his mother. In any event, John Tyler's relationship with his father grew stronger. They grew very close. In fact, Tyler was apparently closer to his father than any of his siblings. Tyler was one of eight children. He had five sisters and two brothers. He was the sixth in line. He was the sixth born child. The relationship with his father nurtured a burgeoning interest in politics. Judge Tyler schooled his son in the limited government ideals of Thomas Jefferson, as well as the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions that were passed in 1798 or were proposed rather in 1798 by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison in an effort to try to prevent the Federalists from trampling on the rights of the states in the run up to a possible war with France. Judge Tyler impressed upon his son the ideals of Thomas Jefferson and limited government, and really relayed to him and, and talked to him often about the virtues of the republicanism of the American Revolution. Judge Tyler also instilled a belief in the virtue of public service. There's also a, a bit of noblesse oblige associated with this. Uh, at one point, Judge Tyler had written to Jefferson saying that good and able men had better govern then be governed. So certainly Judge Tyler and later John Tyler, his son, took it to heart that members of their society, the people who were uh, men who were occupying their place in society, had an obligation to be the ones who led the political system. I like the, uh, the left-hand side of this slide, uh, George Caleb Bingham's The County Election, because it really shows the hurly-burly of politics you see uh, drink being applied. You see the rough and tumble of politics, uh, obviously a very masculine, very male-dominated uh, context. And it's interesting that for all of his gentility, and Tyler did uh, take pride in cultivating the gentility that his father had deemed important throughout his life, uh, that despite this gentility, Tyler found himself quite comfortable in the realm of the nitty-gritty of politics. By the time Tyler entered the preparatory division of the College of William and Mary at age 12, he fully expected that politics would be his calling. And this sh slide shows on the left the Wren building at William and Mary, which is, I believe, the uh, oldest college building still in existence today, the oldest college building uh, still standing in the United States. It was here where uh, John Tyler took his college courses. Uh, William and Mary became a uh, a formidable uh, place for you to go to study politics and political economy. By the time Tyler graduated at age 17, there was no doubt that he would enter the realm of politics. Now, it's interesting if you 
read the few letters that survive between Judge Tyler and John Tyler while he was a student at William and Mary, you really get a sense and appreciate how seriously Tyler took his education. Uh, the two men, the two you know, Tyler and his father, uh, passed letters back and forth that talked about the Bill of Rights that engaged in constitutional debates and, and things that uh, his father had experienced firsthand in politics in Virginia. And you really get a picture of a precocious young man who was doing everything he possibly could to set himself up for a political career. Tyler also benefited from the president of William and Mary, Bishop James Madison, who was a cousin of the fourth president of the United States. Uh, Bishop Madison was a firm believer in the Jeffersonian notion of strict government. He was an anti-federalist himself uh, and really believed that it was his duty to impart these Jeffersonian lessons onto the students who were under his direction. And John Tyler became a, a favorite of Bishop Madison. Bishop Madison actually asked uh, young John Tyler to uh, read one of the graduation orations on the day uh, that he graduated in July of 1807. The other thing that comes out of uh, Tyler's relationship with his father at this time and comes out of his relationship with Bishop Madison and William and Mary is that by the time he graduated at the age of 17, uh, he was brimming with self-confidence. He was very uh, almost full of himself. He was um, you know, very confident. He had certainly moved past the reticence and the, the, the attributes that he had had when he was 10 or 11 or 12 years old, uh, very much confident in himself, confident in his abilities, confident in his intellect. Um, he had been largely classically trained, you know, trained in subjects like Greek and Latin, um, ancient history, politics, political economy. So this is a young man who was very well equipped both with what he got at home and also what he got in college to pursue the career in politics that he so earnestly wanted. His father was good for his self-esteem, as was Bishop Madison, in other words. Tyler once had dinner with Thomas Jefferson, not long after he graduated from William and Mary. And Jefferson impressed upon him that a successful politician, particularly in Virginia, needed to establish himself in the legal profession. In fact, a legal career, Jefferson said to the young man, was a virtual prerequisite to a political career. So much like there was really no doubt that he would attend William and Mary, like his father, like Jefferson, like James Monroe, uh, Tyler is one of three presidents to have attended William and Mary, um, it became pretty apparent that he was going to pursue a legal career. And shortly after he graduated from the College of William and Mary, his father and another Tyler relative took him on as a legal apprentice. A little bit later, when Judge Tyler was elected governor of Virginia and could no longer supervise his son's legal studies, Edmund Randolph stepped in. Randolph had been attorney general under George Washington uh, and really presented young Tyler with a very challenging way to approach the law. Tyler passed the bar in 1809 at the age of 19. Now, this is interesting because in Virginia, the law at the time said that you had to be at least 21 years of age to pass the bar exam, to even sit for the bar exam. But apparently the examiners did not ask Tyler how old he is. Uh, perhaps his father's connections uh, allowed them to look the other way. But in any event, when he was 19, Tyler passed the bar exam, didn't set up a practice right away, kind of uh, took some time to uh, develop further habits, study habits. He participated in some moot court proceedings around Richmond, honing the oratorical skills that he would need in the courtroom. But he was still thinking really in terms of politics. The uh, picture here, the image here on the right hand of the slide shows Tyler at approximately the age of 21 when he won his first political office, a seat in the Virginia House of Delegates. Right away, Tyler threw himself into the fray. He was not content to be a backbencher. He didn't want to wait to uh, you know, build on some kind of a political apprenticeship. He did not want to defer to his betters and his elders uh, who had been in the legislature for some time. He immediately jumped in with an issue that he thought could allow him to build a name and a reputation. 
What he did was he introduced a resolution censuring Virginia's senators, Richard Brent and William Branch Giles, because they had disobeyed the Virginia legislature, which had instructed them to vote against the recharter of the National Bank. Now, this is an interesting episode in Tyler's life. As I said, he graduated from college a bit full of himself, brimming with self-confidence, but his resolutions failed. The legislature immediately tabled the resolutions, which in effect killed them. The legislature adopted another set of resolutions. They still censured the two senators, but they adopted someone else's resolutions. Tyler realized at that time that his colleagues didn't really care too much who his daddy was. They didn't care that he uh, was full of himself, that he had uh, a lot of self-confidence. And really, for the first time in his life, Tyler had been told that something he had done did not pass muster. He wasn't crushed by it, but it did take him aback. It did make him think that maybe this political life is going to be a little bit more difficult than I thought at the outset. In 1813, Tyler took another step in the phase of, of his political life, his political rise. He married well. This is Letitia Christian, a young woman from New Kent County, whom Tyler had married on his 23rd birthday, March 29th, 1813. Judge Tyler had actually died a few months before, which really made it easier for Tyler to get married since he inherited some property from his father. He also inherited debts from his father, but he inherited property, became a young man of some means. And eventually John and Letitia would end up living in this house here, Greenway, the house where John Tyler had been born. So Tyler is, okay, well, I, I hope I'm back. We've had some technical difficulties. Um, I apologize for that. Uh, I think we left off with my uh, analysis of John Tyler's marriage to Letitia Christian uh, from New Kent County. And I made the point that uh, this is another step in his political process because uh, marrying well and enhancing his contacts in other parts of Virginia, particularly Southside Virginia, uh, really became another way that Tyler um, enhanced his political standing and contributed to uh, building a career for himself. But you get the sense that, that Tyler, even at this early stage of his political career, was defined by a constant quest to win election to the next highest office. He found himself in his element in the Virginia legislature, but he was restless. He was impatient. He wanted to get on to a national political career. He was like the person you're talking to at a party who was always scanning the room for someone more important to talk to. Or maybe that's just what happens to me when I'm at parties. And there was a sense that he was motivated, motivated by his father's example, but that he wanted to surpass his father's accomplishments in politics. He certainly wasn't going to be a judge. Uh, he did not have that much interest in the law, using law uh, only as a stepping stone to a political career, but he certainly wanted to surpass his father and become a political figure of national renown. He was also quite adept at taking advantage of fortuitous timing. In September 1816, a very popular congressman who represented Tyler's district, John Clopton, died. Tyler saw an opportunity and stood for election. After an election against a, uh, a son of John Clopton and another candidate named Andrew Stevenson, who had become a legal rival, a friendly rival at the time, Tyler won the election, close election, and was headed to Washington. He had never been to Washington before. And when he got there, he was shocked by what he saw. Uh, Washington still bore the effects of the War of 1812, what the British had done to the Capitol building and to the executive mansion. And Tyler was quite shocked upon seeing Washington and seeing what it looked like uh, in the wake of the destruction that was wrought by the British during the war. The destruction that he saw reinforced something else that his father had instilled upon him as a young man. That was a uh, dislike of all things British. In fact, Tyler seemed to operate under the assumption both as a congressman and as president that anything that was good for the British was not good for the United States. So he kind of nursed a grudge, if you will, 
looking at the destruction that the British had brought about during the War of 1812. But he quickly got over that, got over the initial shock of seeing the way the buildings looked. The Capitol actually was not uh, in the actual Capitol. The, the proceedings were conducted um, in another building, a much more cramped building across town. Uh, but Tyler, much like he had done in the Virginia House of Delegates, did not wait for an invitation to enter the fray. He did so immediately by pouncing on the compensation issue. Now, at the previous session of Congress, the Congress uh, before John Tyler got elected, the Congress had passed a compensation bill that provided a significant raise for congressmen. And once the word got out, once news of the compensation bill got out to communities all across the United States, the reaction was swift. Uh, people disliked the fact that the congressmen had voted to raise, give themselves a raise, particularly in the wake of the financial difficulties of the War of 1812. Uh, the hue and cry against the compensation bill or the salary grab, as the Richmond Inquirer called it, was wide and deep. So Tyler adopted the position that he was going to take the stance that was best for the people. He sought to have the compensation bill repealed and jumped right into the debate, gave two speeches uh, on the compensation matter before the Congress. And there was a sense that some of his older colleagues were a little bit taken aback by the fact that this guy had come in and instantly decided to take them to tax for, task for what they had done at the previous session. Tyler got into a little verbal spat on the floor of the, the Congress with a New York congressman named Thomas Grosvenor. But all in all, Tyler held his own. He was put in his place a little bit. He recognized that uh, he still had work to do to acquire the stature that would give him respect. But he recognized also that he probably changed at least a little bit of the tenor of the debate. The Compensation Act was repealed, and Tyler could at least claim this in triumph when he went back to his constituents in Virginia. During his congressional career, Tyler sharpened his commitment to free trade, which meant that he was anti-protective tariff. He opposed the National Bank and he opposed federally sponsored internal improvements. Okay, so he is really uh, crafting a persona for himself, of, of himself as a politician in the old Republican tradition of Virginia politics. Old Republicans uh, favored limited government, a strict construction of the Constitution, um, states' rights. Tyler was really crafting his persona and developing his reputation as an old Republican in good standing. This is going to be the way that he, um, of course, uh, developed or allowed himself to develop a political career. But being in Washington took a toll on his marriage. While he was in Congress, he had three young children at home. His wife never tired of reminding him how much she disliked his political career, how much she wanted him home. But at least for a time, Tyler didn't want to give it up. But it was a crisis over slavery that will play a significant role in forcing Tyler to retire from Congress in 1821. In 1819, the territory of Missouri had applied for statehood to the U.S. Congress, and a debate quickly uh, developed over whether slavery would be allowed in the territory. Now, Tyler did take part in some of this and was actually quite shocked. He related uh, to his confidant, his brother-in-law, Henry Curtis. Curtis really became um, you know, Tyler's go-to confidant while he served in the Congress. The two men would have a a falling out later over some very serious financial issues, among other things. Uh, but at the time he served in Congress, he, he really told Curtis a lot of what he was thinking and a lot of what he thought about Washington politics. And at one point, as the Missouri crisis and the Missouri debates are occupying an ever more acrimonious place in Washington politics, Tyler was amazed and, and told Curtis that he was amazed that men were speaking of the dissolution of the union with perfect nonchalance. It appalled Tyler that uh, people were, men were talking about breaking up the union rather than, and Southerners, rather than uh, taking slavery out of Missouri. Tyler found all of this quite demoralizing. 
And in the midst of the Missouri debates, what would become the Missouri Compromise, in the midst of these debates, he also suffered a debilitating illness. He took to his bed for about a week. Uh, he was quite shaken by the illness. He had never really felt anything like that before. He had sensations of paralysis in his arms, uh, tingling in his head and in his face. Uh, really alarmed him that he was experiencing such, uh, in many ways, devastating physical symptoms. So the Missouri crisis had been demoralizing to him politically. He had a serious illness. He was also broke. His financial difficulties were coming out into the open, uh, at least with respect to his family. And Letitia wanted him home. So he retired. In 1821, at the age of 31, he went home to Virginia telling people that he would have no more of national politics. Now, retirement for politicians in the early 19th century, especially for Southern politicians, was itself a political act. It allowed politicians to portray themselves as disinterested statesmen who could just walk off the political stage at any time that they saw fit, that principle demanded that they leave. Even as he retired, though, Tyler was setting himself up for a return to politics. Of course, he kept this from Letitia. And here is where you really begin to see the addiction, the all-consuming desire to be in politics. One month after he returned home, one month after he retired, Tyler was writing letters to political associates throughout Virginia, telling them that he would be willing to get back into the political battles if the occasion required it. So here he is, using his retirement as a way, as a political act, to enhance and further his political career, even while he's telling Letitia and portraying to his children that he is happy to be home, but he's still very restless. There's never any doubt, however, that he would return to politics. He won election to the Virginia House of Delegates again, and this really seems to be the pattern for Tyler. Um, he's looking, of course, for more national political exposure, but he starts again with the Virginia House of Delegates. And then in 1825, he was elected governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. And this had to have some uh, important psychic uh, meaning to John Tyler. His father had been governor. Uh, this uh, image here on the left shows Tyler at about the age of 35 or 36 when he became governor of Virginia. The image on the right is the governor's mansion in Richmond. Um, Letitia actually liked this particular political office because it allowed Tyler to stay in Virginia with her and the children. But Tyler hungered for a return to national politics. In 1827, after his reelection as governor, he defeated the incumbent John Randolph for a seat in the United States Senate. John Randolph, shown here on the right, uh, was a faithful adherent to the old Republican principles of states' rights and strict construction. But by the mid-1820s, Randolph's erratic behavior and mercurial temperament had caused a lot of Virginia politicians and a lot of people who followed Virginia politics to become very nervous about him, very nervous about his future defending Virginia and the South in the U.S. Senate. Still, there was a lot of support for Randolph throughout Virginia. And it's interesting when you look at the, uh, the subtle campaign that Tyler waged to unseat Randolph. At one point, he is declaring his public intention to support Randolph for another term. Behind the scenes, he is really scheming with Western politicians, politicians from the Western part of Virginia, to try to enhance his candidacy so that he can supplant Randolph, which he does, uh, does this in 1827. It's during his Senate career that the full impact of his addiction to politics is felt by his family. His children are growing up without their father, and this affects them in different ways. Uh, Tyler's oldest child, his daughter Mary, had a pretty good relationship with, his with her father. Um, you see a lot of letters that pass between Tyler and Mary, uh, going back from Virginia to Washington, Washington to Virginia. Tyler took a keen interest in what his daughter was reading, uh, recommended that she read as many newspapers as she could find, Pope, Addison, Shakespeare, you know, all the things that he had read when he was young. He definitely wanted her to um, develop a fertile mind. 
His oldest son, Robert Tyler, who was born in 1816, uh, had a pretty decent relationship with John Tyler. He was a student at William & Mary, like his father, did well at William & Mary, but there's still a a distance between the two of them, a formality almost, probably owing to the fact that uh, they didn't see each other that much while Robert was growing up. John Tyler Jr., uh, who was born in 1819, no doubt was the one who took his father's absence the hardest. Uh, John, young John, uh, eventually became an alcoholic, uh, suffered through a troubled marriage uh, that was largely his doing, uh, and really had a lot of troubles uh, both before and after Tyler's presidency that John Tyler really despaired of uh, at one point thinking that he was going to end up dead, that, that they would find out uh, that his son and namesake would would uh, be dead. So there's a lot of um, contention within the relationships that Tyler shared uh, with his children. But it's Letitia especially who found it extremely difficult to deal with her husband's continuous absences. There's an anecdote uh, from May of 1831 that I think is particularly telling in this regard. In May of 1831, after the congressional session had ended, John Tyler returned home to Virginia and had barely put his bags down, returning after being gone for five and a half months, had barely put his bags down when he informed Letitia that he had been invited to a political meeting in Richmond, that he would be leaving tomorrow, and that he would likely be gone a few days. Well, that night, Letitia got very ill, uh, so ill, in fact, that she could not get out of bed. Tyler wrote the next day to his friend and fellow Senator, Virginia Senator Littleton Taswell, who was supposed to meet him in Richmond at this political meeting. He wrote, Letitia was so very ill upon my receiving the invitation that I was left but one course to pursue, and that was to decline its acceptance. Now, it seems apparent from other letters, from this one and others, that Tyler had spoken to Littleton Taswell while they were together in Washington about Letitia's health situation. He variously referred to her health situation as delicate, troubling. Uh, It was clear that Letitia suffered what one scholar has called a marriage trauma that developed because of the constant separation that she faced with her husband being in Washington for five to six months of every year. And Tyler really uh, obviously recognized what was going on, recognized that he was the cause of this marriage trauma, recognized that his behavior, political behavior, was responsible for having his wife manifest symptoms of the marriage trauma through illness, yet he still wanted to maintain his political career. Uh, He relied on his daughter, Mary, to act as a caregiver in his absence to her her mother. Um, uh, He instructed her to uh, take care of her mother with um, warm baths and tried to treat her migraines and all the things that he would have done had he been there he made sure that he entrusted to his daughter, Mary. So Mary really became a very key figure, probably an indispensable figure in making sure that John Tyler maintained his political career. Now Tyler resigned from the Senate in February of 1836, rather than vote to expunge the censure of Andrew Jackson. Uh, The Whig party led by Henry Clay in the Senate had passed a resolution of censure that took Andrew Jackson, President Jackson, the task for removing the bank deposits, which inaugurated the bank war in Jackson's second term. But when the Democrats regained control of Congress, they passed what was known as the expunging resolution. And what they aimed to do was expunge the censure from the Senate Journal to literally get it out of the record of the Senate Journal. Tyler was instructed to vote for the expunging resolution by the Virginia legislature. He refused. He resigned in February of 1836 out of principle. But he returned to politics yet again a year and a half later. He was elected to the Virginia legislature for the third time. Again, we see this pattern of uh, looking at a way to try to uh, continue his political career by using the legislature as the springboard. 
He got himself nominated as vice president by the Whigs at their convention in December of 1839, their national convention that nominated William Henry Harrison. And of course, Tippecanoe and Tyler too defeated the incumbent Martin Van Buren in November of 1840. Harrison, as you know, died 32 days into his term. Tyler became president. This image on the right is a romanticized image of Tyler receiving news of Harrison's passing and his elevation to the presidency. Now Harrison had declared his intention to serve only one term as president. Tyler almost desperately wanted a second term. He did not make any claim that he would serve only one term. And after being banished from the Whig ranks in September of 1841, spent much of his time trying to put himself in the position to secure election in his own right in 1844, most notably by pursuing and succeeding in getting the annexation of Texas. Tyler became the first president to marry while in office. On June 26, 1844, he married the New Yorker, 30 years younger, Julia Gardner, in a ceremony in New York City. And on the right of this slide is one of my favorite caricatures or political cartoons of the 1844 presidential campaign. Foot race, Pennsylvania Avenue, the stakes are $25,000. $25,000 is the presidential salary at the time. And here you have Tyler who's saying that he's not gonna run for president anymore, that he's gonna chase what the farmer there calls the gardener's daughter. So marriage uh, definitely became uh, something that in a way took him out of the politics for at least a brief period of time. In March of 1845, John and Julia Tyler retired to Sherwood Forest in Charles City County not far from where Tyler had grown up. Still, Tyler thought about returning to politics. He toyed with the idea of running for the U.S. Senate in 1848, if you can believe that. His correspondence indicates that he even entertained ideas about being the Democratic nominee for president in 1856 and 1860. Now, to put this into a little bit more context, at least at one point in the late 1850s, Tyler's family thought he would die from one of his illnesses. So here you have a man who is habitually unhealthy, who was still thinking that at least at some level, he might be able to secure the Democratic nomination for president. When Abraham Lincoln's election in November of 1860 brought secession and eventually civil war, Tyler decided he had to get back into politics. I like this image on the left. It shows Fortress Monroe during the Civil War. Fortress Monroe, uh, the Norfolk area, is where uh, John Tyler and Julia honeymooned in the summer of 1844. Tyler became the chair of an ill-fated peace conference in Washington in February of 1861. It was at this, uh, at this time while he was in Washington for the peace conference that Tyler met President-elect Abraham Lincoln. He came away from Lincoln very unimpressed. Lincoln was quite unimpressed with John Tyler. He returned the favor. Once Virginia seceded from the Union in April of 1861, Tyler won election to the Provisional Confederate Congress and eventually sought election to the Permanent Congress. He won. This is the best example of how politics retained its hold on him, how he was addicted to politics. Now, he died before he could take his seat in the Congress. He died on January 18, 1862. But he should have stayed out of it. I'm very critical of him for this decision to get back into politics. Critical because it really tarnished his historical reputation beyond repair. Uh, he was uh, starting to enjoy a little bit more of the statesmanlike uh, sentiment that the American people had for him. A lot of the bad feelings that had developed over him being banished from the Whig ranks while he served as president had receded in the historical memory a little bit getting involved in politics again, coming out of retirement and becoming part of the Confederate government ruined all of that. He essentially renounced his citizenship, renounced his dedication to the constitution that he had been sworn to uphold and defend while president. More importantly, I think, his decision to re-enter politics in the Confederate government had negative repercussions for his family, uh, particularly Julia. Uh, later in her life, Julia sought a 
pension from the federal government as a president's widow. And during her campaign to secure the pension, which was very difficult, uh, required a lot of uh, legal maneuvering, a lot of help, a lot of aid from politically well-connected individuals in Washington, newspapers never seemed to tire of reminding everyone that Julia Tyler was married to the traitor president. So I think it's right to be very hard on John Tyler for this decision to enter politics one last time late in 1861. I think there's an anecdote from a later president that could really speak to what politicians like Tyler thought about and how politics really consumed them. The later president is John F. Kennedy. And in 1963, as he was sizing up his potential rivals for the presidency, the potential uh, Republican nominees for president in 1964, you know, he talked about Barry Goldwater, whose name was being mentioned significantly. He talked about Nelson Rockefeller. And he thought about Rockefeller, and he thought that he couldn't really understand what Rockefeller was doing. About a year earlier, Rockefeller had left his wife to marry a much younger woman, uh, a woman who it was said in the press that he stole from her husband. There were young children involved, but Rockefeller had seemingly sacrificed everything to be with the woman he loved. Really, he probably forestalled any chance he had of winning the Republican nomination in 1964 because of the scandal that ensued because he was marrying the woman he loved. So Kennedy was, was thinking about this and he declared that no man would ever love love more than politics. I think John Tyler probably would have understood exactly the sentiment that John F. Kennedy mentioned at that time. I appreciate your attention today. Um, if you have not bought my book, I want this slide burned into your memory. Uh, this is the title of the book. This is the, uh, the cover of the book. And before I go, I just wanted to make sure that I gave you an indication of coming attractions. Uh, my wife and I have a, a book, a biography of Julia Gardner Tyler, which is under contract with the University Press of Kansas. And our manuscript is due in October, uh, just a few months away. So I will be happy to take any questions that you might have and I appreciate your attention. Thanks, Chris. Uh, and again, folks, uh, apologies for the brief delay due to technical difficulties. Um, we do have a few minutes for questions. So uh, log into Facebook or YouTube uh, to submit your questions uh, for Chris. And uh, one thing that comes to mind, obviously, uh, we've seen other figures in politics, both historically and in contemporary times who are, who are driven like like Tyler. Um, and I think one of the things that makes makes us fascinating as as historians is the detective work that goes into understanding what makes someone like that tick. And I'm wondering what you might have uncovered, uncovered in your research um, that that gave you some some clue to this and and maybe perhaps more importantly was there anything that he left in his own hand in his own writing that might have revealed what what drove him well he he does refer to his father um particularly early in his political career about you know maybe emulating his father and how his father had in effect set him uh on this course but i think uh, the the situation after he retired in 1821, where you know he's talking about how, and, and the way he put it was, he owed a duty to his family to retire and to return to Virginia to try to earn more money um, as a practicing attorney. Yet, even as he is saying that, uh, within you know very short period of time after he returns home, he is writing political associates, in effect, repudiating his retirement in effect saying that, you know, I don't really mean it. I don't really want to stay out of politics. So I think there's a, a sense that you get when you when you read the letters, particularly the letters that pertain to politics, is that this is something that, that Tyler thinks about constantly. You know, he, he has money problems. He has significant money problems. He certainly does worry about his children. He worries about his wife. It's not to say that, you know, he's completely unfeeling about those things. But Reading his correspondence, you really get a sense that this is a man who defines himself 
by his political career and success in the political arena. So, you know, whether it was unwittingly or not, he really does reveal himself as he is talking about, as he is writing about what he intends to do with his political career. And you, you had mentioned, uh, uh, perhaps facetiously, perhaps not, that you thought it might have been possible that he had some type of clinical addiction. You did mention that his son had difficulties with alcohol. Any evidence to believe that he might have had some type of clinical addiction? No, I, I don't. I don't think so. Um, he he wasn't much of a drinker. Um, he would drink champagne uh, in in modest amounts, which usually gave him a headache the next day. Um, kind of funny things after you know after White House parties and whatnot. Um, you know, other than his his near compulsion to be in the political game, uh, he does not. He certainly does not exhibit more of the clinical aspects of addiction that that his son would later. Um, and, you know, I think obviously, you know, he didn't know he doesn't have the language of the 21st century to try to really characterize what he's doing or how he's acting or even how his son was acting. Um, but I, I don't think that that he necessarily Tyler himself necessarily um, does exhibit any kind of clinical sign. You, you'd mentioned briefly uh, about his role in Annex in Texas. I wonder if you might expand on that a little bit more about what his his driving or motivating factor was for that well, it appears we might have technical difficulties again on chris's end Folks, I, I apologize for that. So we might uh, we might need to wrap up um, since we're very close to, to ending. Um, but again, thanks to, to Dr. Leahy for his fascinating lecture on John Tyler. Be sure to order his book through our website and be sure to mark your calendars for our next Banner Lecture, which will be on June 24th, when we'll have Dr. Vanessa Holden talking about her book, Surviving Southampton, African-American Women and Resistance in Nat Turner's Community. Thanks again for joining us and have a great afternoon. Bye-bye.